0: Welcome to the Candida Chronicles with our host Michael Biamonte, certified clinical nutritionist. In this podcast, Michael will answer your questions and reveal the shocking truth that the cause of most chronic ailments is not what you've been told. The source is Candida, a yeast overgrowth which, when it becomes systemic, can cause all sorts of seemingly unrelated ailments such as chronic fatigue syndrome and even weight gain, for more information on how Michael can help you, please visit healthtruth.com. that's health-truth.com, or phone his office at 212-587-2330. And now, without further ado, Michael Biamonte.
1: Hello everyone, this is Michael Biamonte, clinical nutritionist, with another episode of the Candida Chronicles. Today we're going to be discussing the relationship between Candida and cancer. Now, uh, that might be a bit uh, a bit strong of an introduction, and many of you may not know this or equate this, but scientifically, there is a pretty strong connection between candida and cancer, and it's for a few reasons. The first relationship between candida and cancer comes about regarding how similar both... Uh, Let's say, for lack of a better term, most mo- both processes are in the body. When one does a PET scan, which is a, a sort of a CAT scan, that's meant to show areas of cancer in the body, it's also possible that areas of candida growth can show on the PET scan. This is because candida and Cancer both have a a, a metabolism in common. They are high sugar consumers. Sugar feeds candida, as most candida patients know. And cancer is also fed by sugar. So when someone who has cancer or candida is eating a lot of sugar, they're making their condition considerably worse. This is why someone would, with both conditions would definitely want to avoid both sugar and a high-carbohydrate diet if they have cancer. Interestingly, it was observed by some of the early pioneers that um, in nutrition and nutritional medicine, that candida and cancer would tend to come together. Now, this could be argued nowadays from a modern viewpoint. You could argue that the reason why someone who has cancer nowadays would have candida would be because of their treatment. Chemotherapy and radiation therapy are likely to bring about candida in a cancer patient because of how those two treatments suppress the immune system. But cancer itself is immunosuppressive. Cancer itself is a process which is suppressing your own immune system, which, interestingly enough, is then going to bring about a higher incidence of cancer. So their relationship becomes more interesting in this matter. Tumors are known to have an exceptionally high metabolism rate and cancer or tumors are known to literally eat into uh, various body tissues. Um, Tumors, there are certain types of tumors which can actually eat right through your bone. Now what's interesting is, well, I, I could not say that Candida particularly does this as an organism. But we do know that in the manner which Candida grows in the body it does grow in that kind of similar manner where it actually does permeate your tissues. It's definitely not as devastating as cancer is in destroying large areas of tissue, bone or glands, but it has the similar effect. If anyone has ever seen mold growing into a piece of cheese or mold growing in a piece of bread. Candida has that similar reaction when it overgrows in your body and tissues where it actually can start to permeate tissues. It's doing that because it's looking for sugar, which is the primary thing that it feeds on. So this becomes a very interesting coincidence or correlation between these two processes. There's also a bit of a relationship between pH and cancer and pH and funguses, but it's not quite the relationship that people often think. As an example, in the cells of your body, cancer processes are sped up, and some doctors would also say initiated, by excessive acidity in a cell. Doctor, the cell. The late Dr. Nicholas Gonzalez uh, based a lot of his cancer treatment on returning alkalinity to the cell because he found that alkalinity would reverse the cancer process in cells. The interesting thing is that if you study alkalinity and acidity, and you compare it to heat and cold, there is a similar comparison. Alkalinity would align with cold, acidity would align with heat. Acidity and, acidity and heat both increase particle flow, where alkalinity and cold tend to decrease particle flow. Cancer thrives in an acid environment and in the tissues, Candida does as well, but in the intestinal tract, Candida wants an acid envi- uh, I'm sorry, an alkaline environment. In the intestinal tract, Candida grows and does particularly well when the pH of the intestines is above seven point four. When you reduce the alkalinity in the colon or in the intestinal tract, this is what brings Candida to a halt. It's a bit different in that manner with cancer cells and candida. The one thing that candida does not do, which cancer cells do, is uh, cancer cells do construct their own blood vessels and their own circulatory systems. So a tumor, in other words, grows its own blood vessels in order to permeate your blood vessels to get blood glucose, and other nutrients, where candida cells do not do that. Candida cells form more of a root-like structure to tap into your blood vessels. It's not, not quite the same as a, a cancer cell. Similar, but not exactly the same. It's not the same type of tissue. Always keep in mind the foremost thing when you're thinking of candida is that candida is a vegetation. Candida is not a live uh, type of carbon-based human tissue, the way you could argue that cancer cells are. You could argue that cancer cells are human cells which have run amok and are peripherating at a very high rate, which is unnatural to them. But they're not the same type of tissue. They do have this interesting point in common where both of them do grow, you could say, extensions which are looking to get blood out of your own blood vessels for the glucose, but it's not quite in the same manner. But the fact that they do this at all is, is quite interesting, where they have this fact in common. There is a herbal substance, which is sold under the trade name of vasculastatin, what it is is actually extract of the bindweed, B I N D, bindweed. There's been quite a lot of research done on this bindweed over the years, and a st- several studies have shown that bindweed, when you consume it orally, inhibits the ability of cancer cells to grow blood vessels in order to tap into your own blood vessels and obtain glucose. Studies have been done exposing eggs to binweed, Eggs which are in the process of going through their formation of baby chicks. And it was found that as the egg was trying to produce the, the infant chick, it was unable to because the egg was not able to form blood vessels in a circulatory system when it was exposed to binweed. And the same thing essentially is true when you're dealing with uh, candida and bin, uh, I'm sorry the uh, cancer and the binweed. The cancer in the human body has been shown in quite a few studies by the manufacturers of the binweed products to be inhibited in taking the bin weed. It's interesting looking at statistics that different physicians have compiled in terms of the relationship between candida and cancer. One physician documented that 79% to 97% of all cancer patients appeared to have candidiasis. The argument, of course, here is going to be, well, is that because they have it as a result of their cancer treatment, or is it just simply innate to the disease process. So that would be an interesting argument to, uh, to have. It certainly is, a, is very common that you'll find cancer patients developing thrush, which is the candida yeast growth in the mouth. And they will, women often develop vaginal yeast infections. Men easily develop um, yeast overgrowth in the genital region. Both, as I said, will develop thrush very easily. It's interesting to note that in a study, an unofficial, quite unofficial study, I would even, not even call it a study, I would call it a long-term observation that my practice has made over the years, is that irregardless of the outcome of the cancer, we have found that patients who have cancer, who do not go under orthodox and traditional cancer treatments, usually do not develop any outward signs of candida, where the patients who have had chemotherapy and radiation easily develop outward signs of candida. Osteoarthritis is another illness which has been associated with candida, and also rheumatoid arthritis. Rheumatoid arthritis is a bit easier to explain, I would think, because of the relationship between candida and autoimmune diseases. Rheumatoid arthritis is alleged by many people in the uh, alternative health field to be caused by autoimmune function in the body, which often begins with intestinal permeability or leaky gut syndrome. In a a study done within my own practice, we found that 75% of everyone who we tested, or who came to us with legitimate medical testing showing that they had rheumatoid arthritis, had leaky gut syndrome when they were tested for leaky gut. The other 25% did not have leaky gut, but they did have extreme candida. Well, I, have never, I have not seen any rheumatoid arthritis patient who did not either have candida or leaky gut, Rheumatoid arthritis is an inflammatory condition. It's an autoimmune condition, and it will usually begin with candida and the person having intestinal permeability. This leads to localized inflammation in different joints in the body due to the body's autoimmune response. Another condition of the thyroid gland, which is Hashimoto's disease, is also heavily linked to candida. Uh, Once again, a study that we had done within our own practice, we found that the majority, at least 80% of everyone who had Hashimoto's, had candida. And we found a considerable improvement in the Hashimoto's by simply eliminating the candida. To further treat Hashimoto's, we have found that giving an extract of the parotid gland, which is a gland that's located in your neck, it's kind of like a salivary gland, it controls antibody response in your in your body uh, is very important in reversing Hashimoto's as far as i know my practice has not encountered a single person who did not have their Hashimoto's reversed by taking a parotid gland concentrates within a period of 6 months or so if there was anyone out there who was not benefited by that, then my memory just escapes me. But as far as I can recall, we haven't had anyone who did not respond to treatment with the parotid gland with their Hashimoto's. I've had doctors call me from literally all over the country asking me what in the world I did with this patient where their thyroid antibodies are now normal and where they had been elevated for years, and years, and years, and it's simply the administration of parotid gland tissue. Of course, there are very, um, very many and quite obvious diseases or maladies of the gastrointestinal tract and the digestive tract that would relate directly to Candida. Those are kind of too obvious, and as far as this discussion of those, I think that's a waste of time for this podcast because we're more discussing candida, cancer, and other degenerative diseases, not so much digestive diseases, which you would take as a matter of fact in a person having candida. Heart disease and candida are another thing that some people would never suspect. But there, there is significant evidence that certain uh, inflammatory conditions of the heart can be linked to Candida, bacterial infections can get into the heart and cause very severe problems and some of those bacterial infections can be accompanied by or are associated with having Candida as a foundation for the infection. Chronic sinusitis is another common problem that you find in Candida sufferers where the Candida begins to overgrow in the sinus. Uh, there are many lung maladies, lung issues, which are eventually traced down to having candida, which has gotten into the lung and spread into the lung. Very difficult to treat, if you don't understand how to, because a doctor uh, is apt to instinctively want to give the patient niastatin or one of the typical medical drugs, which would have no effect at all in the lungs. When you're dealing with a lung infection where candida is involved, um, you're definitely not going to use niostatin. That would certainly not be a drug of choice, because niastatin is essentially only active in the intestinal tract. Uh, going back, though, to our original topic of, of candida and cancer, one of the waste products of candida, as we all know, are acetylaldehydes, which are basically ethanols. Uh, ethanols are alcohols, essentially. And the constant exposure of cells to ethanol definitely leads to damage to DNA and excessive amounts of free radicals which are known, unfortunately, to cause cancer. This, you could say, could be one of the ways that cancer occurs as a result of Candida. So when you're dealing with this, you have to understand that you're dealing with multi-processes. We have ethanol's. we have Candida suppressing the immune system. We have Candida causing deficiency states and here's where we might find the, the best comparison between candida and cancer and the best explanation resulting in why cancer develops in the presence of candida. Candida is known to produce certain clear deficiencies. In my practice over the years, we've identified patients with chronic candidiasis as having magnesium deficiency, copper deficiency, molybdenum deficiency, and also selenium deficiency. If you look up any one of those minerals individually, under the heading of that mineral deficiency as associated with cancer, you will find a good amount of research on this, particularly with magnesium and with selenium. Copper, as an element, is twofold. Because it's common that you find elevated copper in people who have candida. You will occasionally find people very deficient in copper. It's a very individual case or study. The people who have excess copper that have candida are typically women. And they're typically women that are still menstruating. There's, if you go into our earlier podcast where I talk about the connection between uh, estrogen and candida, you find that the mineral copper fits right into this. Estrogen and copper and candida all have a similar bond or a similar link to each other. Copper is very estrogenic, as is candida. Women who have candida tend to have more estrogen dominance which causes a greater storage of copper in the body. And the copper is then associated with the excess growth of candida. Copper itself, when it's in excess in someone's body, could be thought of as being biologically unavailable. This means that you might have a lot of the metal or the element showing up in your tissues or in a test, but it's not really available for your body to use from a physiological standpoint, the way it normally would be. This is a very difficult concept for many people to understand. I've talked to PhDs and medical doctors of all types, and unless they really understand nutrition and how the body utilizes nutrients, it's very difficult to get them to see this concept. Uh, Nutrients have to be obviously digested absorbed, assimilated, and then utilized in the body. When a person has an excess amount of a mineral, like copper, which can be a heavy metal when it reaches an excess in your body, the copper actually interferes at that high level with the body's normal chemical processes in many ways, and it causes to make the copper that's in excess storage in your system unavailable to the rest of your body and to your tissues. So you could liken this to having a lot of money in your savings account but not being able to transfer it to your checking account where you would actually disperse it and do something with it. So this person is actually thought of as being in a way functionally deficient in copper. Copper deficiency is also associated with fungal problems because copper is one of the body's natural antifungals. If you don't believe that me on that case, look at what people put in pools to kill algae and kill fungus. Well, you use copper sulfate as a treatment. This is exactly how the copper is going to work in the human body. It also has this antifungal effect. So when a person starts to develop candida and the candida causes either a deficiency or an excess of copper you then are going to want to study the references dealing with copper and cancer. And what you're going to find when you look at that is that copper in excess is associated with reproductive cancers, cancers that particularly involve estrogen. And copper deficiency is going to involve cancers that are usually a very high malignant growth, very aggressive cancers that tend to be very anaerobic. Not that all cancer isn't, but this is to to a greater extent. You'll find that copper deficiency involves those faster, more active tumors or or, or cancer tissues, different than the reproductive types of cancer that you get with the high copper level. Stomach cancer and other forms of cancer have been well recognized to exist in selenium deficiency. Selenium deficiency is argued as one of the reasons why people would develop can, uh, candida in the first place. So there is the correlation right there. Magnesium deficiency has been found in various cancers. You can Google that. And you will again find that the patient who has candida will either has a very high level of magnesium or a low one. It's the, it would be the same analogy as the copper situation where they have either too much or too little. And in having too much, it's not really available to the body in the normal ways that it would be. So looking at this from the nutritional angle, it can be more obvious as to why candida and cancer can easily come together. And this, of course, is more of a concern when you're dealing with chronic candida. The longer a person has candida the more susceptible they are to then developing cancer as a result of having candida from the toxicity the candida causes, from the change in your hormones that it would cause, from the nutritional deficiencies that it would cause. So next question is very often going to be, well, how do we handle this? And uh, how this is handled, I would just refer you right back to the basic articles and the basic podcasts on the health-truth.com website, which deal with the Diamante Method and eliminating Candida, because that is the most comprehensive method that, that I know of right now. The biggest mistake that people make when it comes to addressing Candida is they don't properly test to determine their Candida levels. They do not properly retest as follow-ups to see whether or not their treatment is working, whether the treatment needs to be adjusted, and whether or not the treatment needs to be ended, because there is that, and there is that also. They tend not to rotate their antifungals. They They tend to take the antifungal every day as a routine, and they will go sometimes two to three months on the same antifungal in which case they are now going to drive their Candida cells into mutation and into drug resistance. That begins to occur after 21 days on the same antifungal, whether it's a pharmaceutical or an herb. Makes no difference. People tend to take probiotics as a solution to eliminating Candida, which is a very big, big business. However, it's a it's a, it's a fallacy because. You know, Probiotics are not able to stick to the gut lining, and probiotics are not able to inhibit the growth of candida once the candida is established. Probiotics are of great value when you've gotten rid of candida and you're now reimplanting the probiotic to prevent the reoccurrence of candida. But while you have candida, if you take probiotics and are expecting anything to occur that will be a long term benefit, you're grossly mistaken. Many people can feel benefit from taking probiotics short-term. There are many people who also have negative reactions to probiotics when they're hosting candida. This is all covered on the health-truth.com website in more detail than I'll give you here. Suffice to say, to conclude on that subject, is that taking taking probiotics as a solution to having candida is a failed treatment It does not work. It will never work. It's not possible for it to work um, because of the fact that Candida repels probiotics and stops them from being able to stick to the lining of your intestines. There are certain types of probiotics which we would have to argue, are they actually probiotics or not, that are the exception to this rule. The exception to this rule are soil-based organisms. Soil-based organisms are not part of your normal flora, They occur in very small amounts in the intestinal tract. They're typically found in small amounts in healthy people. They're usually not found at all in unhealthy people. And these uh, soil-based organisms are forms of friendly bacteria, which actually destroy harmful microbes in your intestines, including candida, through a process called phagocytosis, which is where the cell actually digests the other cell. So the good cell, which is the SOB, meaning soil-based organism, not what you thought initially when I said that. You know, there are many of you out there who are familiar with an abbreviation that's SOB, which is a derogatory term we won't use on this broadcast. Uh, but these good SOBs, meaning the soil-based organisms, are going to literally digest the candida and the other bad cells. There are several forms of these soil-based organisms. And I, I, I am going to say here candidly that this is an inside joke between myself and a few other doctors. The correct abbreviation would be SBOs. But uh, somehow at a conference a few years ago, a doctor turned it around and started calling the meso in a derogatory sense. So that's why I passed that along because I know some of you are listening today. To this broadcast, so I want you to know that I know you're out there and I don't forget you. Now, in looking at this process that we have, you could argue from the deficiency standpoint that a person with candida for a long period of time is at great risk for developing cancer. Uh, I've discussed some of these basic mineral deficiencies here. It goes far beyond that. In my practice, at one point in time, for several years, we had rather routine tests that we did on everyone. And amongst these routine tests were a hair mineral analysis and a functional nutritional test called the organics test. And we would run these tests on everyone who came to us, along with some other testing, depending on their individual needs. But these were uh, typical tests we would run on everyone. We would also run a comprehensive wellness blood profile, which is also known as an SMA 24, 25, or 26, depending on the exact panel you get, which had a CBC, which is complete blood count, and WBC, which is white blood count. We would run these tests routinely on everyone, including whatever individual tests we felt they need. And we found something very interesting. Indeed, the patient with candida had multiple deficiencies. In fact, the patient with candida may have had more deficiencies present than the non-candida patient. But we found something very interesting that we decided at that time that we were not going to treat these deficiencies in people because we were just learning at that point about which vitamins and nutrients would make candida worse or which vitamins and nutrients would actually interfere with the actions of antifungals. So we opted not to treat these people for their deficiencies, and instead we decided we were what we were gonna do was just simply eliminate their candida. Now, when we did this, we found something fascinating. We would put the person on our standard Candida treatment, which would be phase zero, one, and two, and then at the end of that point, we would then retest their deficiencies to see what we now needed to do from that viewpoint on phase three of the can- of our Candida treatment. Phase three of our Candida treatment is where we we uh, address any toxic metals, toxic chemicals, any toxic condition in the body. ...and where we correct hormone and nutrient imbalances. Lo and behold, we found when we retested these people... ...after they had completed the candida program... ...their deficiencies were far less. So just as an example, if we found the person at the onset of the treatment with us... ...to be 60 to 70 percent deficient in the majority of all major nutrients... By the time they completed the candida treatment, and we were now ready to address those deficiencies, their deficiency level improved to maybe being only 20 to 30%. So I'm giving you these numbers as a comparison. Um, These numbers would uh, eventually be tabulated as a sum total of all deficiencies. There is not a test that we have that simply gives you that data. I'm giving that giving you that as a a comparison, where you would have a person sixty to seventy percent deficient and then not address those deficiencies at all, give them absolutely no supplement that would address those deficiencies, only address the candida, only remove the candida, their dysbiosis, rebalance their intestinal flora, and test them again and find that their deficiency state had now reduced to maybe only twenty to thirty percent. So what this is telling you is that someone who is deficient is going to be deficient because of their candida and that you don't need to treat the deficiencies if you want to get a really permanent, long-lasting correction. What you need to do is eliminate the candida. The same analogy would be true here in the case of the cancer patient who comes to you. And the cancer patient is going to show all these multiple deficiencies. But yet, if they have a significant growth of candida, you're actually wasting their time and doing them a disservice by putting them on an array of nutrients to treat their deficiencies. Because number one, some of those nutrients are going to spread their candida and make it worse. And for those of you who haven't been following the podcasts or any of the material on our website... The nutrients that make candida worse are coenzyme Q10, vitamin D, uh, typically calcium, and iron. You're also going to find that if you put them on nutrients which block the antifungals that you're giving them, you're wasting your time. And the nutrients that block antifungal actions are all antioxidants. Every and all antioxidant acts as an antidote in stopping your candida medicine, your candida antifungal, whether it's pharmaceutical or plant-based, from working. So in treating the candida patient's deficiencies, you stand a risk in making the candida worse and then blocking your own antifungal treatments. By far, the smartest way to address the person's deficiencies who has candida is to get rid of the candida because you're now not only not having to put them on nutrients, which could make the candida worse, but you're also getting rid of the candida, which is taxing their immune system and undoubtedly making their immune response worse. When you've eliminated the person's candida, then you can, be, you can feel free to address their deficiencies along with whatever else you might be doing to address their underlying uh, cancer or their oncologist is doing. There's a tremendous amount of good that can be done when you're dealing with cancer patients using nutrition. Very typically, the cancer patients who see a clinical nutritionist like myself are going to experience a minority of symptoms of the chemotherapy or radiation compared to the person who's not having this type of treatment. It's often a wonder and great amazement to my patients who undergo chemotherapy and radiation as to why the oncologist does not have a, a practitioner such as myself <clears throat> Excuse me, actually in their practice treating all of the patients because the benefit that the patient gets and the reduction of symptoms that they have as a side effect of their chemo or radiation is very significant. Typically, when a patient comes to us who's undergoing chemotherapy or some some, some type of cancer treatment, the first treatment we put them on is an intestinal cleanse and a, a programmed to rebalance their intestinal flora or strengthen their flora. This would also translate as a candida treatment. And if the person, for whatever reason, didn't happen to have a very strong case of candida, we would still have them doing this intestinal cleanse while they were doing the chemo or the radiation. Because while doing chemo and radiation, there's a lot of toxicity created. There's a process called lysis, which means the breakdown of tissues or cells, and when, when lysis is occurring from chemotherapy, this is the chemotherapy destroying the, the bad cancer cells and other cells as well, there is a significant amount of toxicity produced of many different kinds. There are a lot of free radicals produced. There are a lot of dead cancer cells, dead yeast cells, very toxic material. So we have the person do a very effective colon cleanse while they're on chemo because the colon cleanse absorbs these toxins in their system and eliminates them rather quickly, which handles most of the bad effects they normally would feel from the chemotherapy and the radiation. Despite the old, uh, I would say wise tale it is at this point, that you shouldn't take vitamins or nutrients while you're on chemotherapy. We use very very specific programs for people when they're on chemotherapy that contain nutrients and these nutrients are able to help balance the system and detoxify the system in light of the chemo. We find we have never had a patient whose doctor came back and said to them well the chemo apparently didn't work in your case. And this proved to me probably 20 years ago that this whole idea that you couldn't take vitamins while you were getting chemo was all nonsense. Uh, It was purported that if you took biotin, if you took folic acid, there were particular vitamins they were very worried about that if you took them, it would uh, inactivate the chemo like it was an antidote to the chemo. I have not found that to be true from a practical sense. As I said, we've never had a patient whose doctor told them the chemo didn't work because they were on these various vitamins. These vitamins, I feel, actually assist the chemo in working. That would be a subject for another podcast, but that has been my experience. If anything, they've assisted in working. And certainly, they have protected the person from having the huge side effects that you normally would have from chemo and radiation. When one is having radiation, the most important nutrients to take would be niacin, vitamin B3, and potassium iodide. Potassium iodide has been found to protect the cells from radiation, and niacin in the form of nicotinic acid, which is the form of niacin which causes you to have the red, itchy flush, actually helps eliminate the buildup of radiation in the body. So this is a way of detoxifying the body of radiation after the chemo, uh, sorry, after the radiation treatments. When you're doing chemo, the correct detoxification measures would be the intestinal cleansing, along with whatever nutrients the person's tests tend to indicate they need, which they tend to be most efficient in. That would be more of a genetic issue For you to look at through their own testing. But with radiation, the potassium iodide and the niacin works very well. Many people make the mistake of buying the non-flush niacin or niacinamide, which does not do the job the nicotinic acid does. Very specifically, to remove radiation from the body, it must be nicotinic acid. It is the type of niacin which causes a flush, not the non-flush niacin. Well, that will bring us to the end of the podcast today. I hope this information has been useful to you. It certainly is a bit of a scary thing to confront, that there's a relationship between candida and cancer. But if you get rid of your candida, you don't really need to worry about it. So this is Michael Biamonte again for the Candida Chronicles. I wish you health, and I wish you to tune in next Tuesday for our next live podcast.
0: That's a wrap for this episode of the Candida Chronicles featuring Michael Biamonte, certified clinical nutritionist. Michael holds a doctorate of neutropathy and is a New York State certified clinical nutritionist. He is a professional member of the International and American Association of Clinical Nutritionists and of the American College of Nutrition, and he's a member of the Scientific Advisory Board for the Clinical Nutrition Certification Board. For more information on how Michael can help you, please visit healthtruth.com, that's health-truth.com, or phone his office at 212-587-2330.